Today we're going to be looking at a prophet with a purpose. Our sermon series on Sunday morning is The Prophets Speak. And we're looking at what the prophets of old had to say to the nation of Israel. What the prophets of old had to say to the church of their day. What the prophets of old had to say to the people of yesterday. And I've submitted to you that the prophets that spoke then are speaking today. They're speaking to the United States of America. They're speaking to the church of Jesus Christ. They're speaking to you and I who claim the name of the Lord. The message hasn't changed. The times may change, but God's word is still the same. A prophet with a purpose. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. And they spoke to Nehemiah, and they gave him this report on Jerusalem. They said, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are suffering great affliction and reproach. The walls of the holy city are broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Verse 4, When these words were given to Nehemiah when they came to pass, when he heard these words, he sat down and began to cry, to weep profusely, he mourned, he was in sorrow for a great number of days. He fasted, he went without food or drink for a long period of time. And all in that, he prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was a Jewish man, a prophet, you might say, who had a secular occupation. He was called to be the cupbearer of the king of Persia. This was a high position in that day. It was a position of great responsibility in that time. The responsibility of the cupbearer to the king was to be with the king 24-7. Wherever the king went, you went with him. You followed in his shadow, you might say. Whenever the king was given food, you inspected the food. Whenever the king was given drink, you inspected the drink. It was your responsibility as a cupbearer to make sure that what the king received was good and it had not been tampered with, poisoned. For this reason, only the men of the highest integrity, morally and spiritually, were called to be cupbearers to a king. Nehemiah was called by a secular king, a pagan king, an idol-worshipping king, to be his cupbearer. Now also, as a cupbearer, you were more than just a food inspector, a drink inspector. You were also a security guard, because you were with the king all the time. You were almost like a secret service person. You were also a trusted advisor. Because you heard every conversation and every counsel that was given to the king. You heard it all. 
And it was not unusual when all the counselors left, when all the advisors departed for the king to turn to the cupbearer and say, well, what do you think? So I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, Nehemiah is in a great position of honor and responsibility. And I want you to understand something. It was God who put him there. This wasn't a position he was in by accident or luck or chance or coincidence. Our God is a sovereign God. And our God is a master chess master. And he's constantly moving his sons and daughters, his people, on the chessboard of life to put us in positions that he wants us to be in. That he might use us for a great work. Wherever you're at right now, have you considered the fact that God's put you there? Whatever you're going through right now, have you ever thought of the fact that God is allowing you to go through it? That God is using your position. God is using the pressures that you're facing. Because God is preparing you for something down the line that He is going to have you do. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of He's an advisor. He's a security guard. He's the inspector of food and drink. And God put him there because God is ready to do something. Now, what does God want to do? God wants to repair, rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem. It is laid in ruins for 140 years. 140 years, God's city, the holy city, having been destroyed by the Babylonians, has not been rebuilt. It's not been restored. It's not been remodeled. It's just a mass of rubble. And God wants his city rebuilt. He wants the walls rebuilt, the gates reestablished, the structures within rebuilt. And God is ready now to use Nehemiah and the position that he's in, the responsibility he's been given to make this happen. Now remember, this is not just a story about Nehemiah, is it? It's a story about who? Fingers up. Do that. It's a story about you. It's a story about me and how God wants to use us in the position that he's put us in and the pressures and problems in life that we might face or the prestige and prosperity we might face. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is his burden. Nehemiah's burden. I call your attention once again to verse 3 and 4, chapter 1. In chapter 3, Nehemiah receives the news from someone who has come from Jerusalem. The news concerning the people and concerning the city. The people are struggling with their faith and the city still in ruins. Upon hearing these words in verse 4, notice that Nehemiah sits down and begins to cry. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time you cried about anything? 
When's the last time you shed a tear about something that burdened you or bothered you or bugged you? We don't see people cry much anymore. But Nehemiah, God's man, did you hear me? God's man began to profusely weep as he heard about the plight of the people of God and the city of rubble and ruin of God. He began to to cry. He went into mourning. That word mourning means he was saddened and sorrowful, not only on the inside, but it showed on the outside. And he began to fast. He wanted to know what God wanted to do about this. And he began to pray. Hmm. Nehemiah is heartbroken, ladies and gentlemen. He's heartbroken when he sees the people of God and how demoralized and defeated they are, how far they are away from God morally and spiritually. He's heartbroken when he looks at God's city, supposedly to be the shining city on the hill, and now it's just a bunch of rubble on a mountain. And what breaks Nehemiah's heart more than anything else, ladies and gentlemen, nobody seems to care. 140 years this has been going on. And nobody, from the priest all the way down to the peasant, nobody's done anything about it. Why? Because the people in Nehemiah's day were caught up doing their own thing. They were caught up doing their own thing. Life was about them, not about him. Life was about their agenda, not his kingdom. Life was about my punch list, not his will list. They were so caught up in the things of the world, they had no time for the things of the world to come. And this bothered Nehemiah. And he was so bothered by it that his heart was broken. And you could see the tear tracks on his face, the redness of his eyes, the sadness of his countenance. The king saw that too. After all, Nehemiah is with him 24-7. And one day the king turns to Nehemiah Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. You might want to just flip through and look at that as I'm talking. And he says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? You are always a joyful man. Now you're so sad. You're always an optimistic man. And now you're so pessimistic. You're always so full of life. And now you just drag around as if you're just existing. Nehemiah, what's going on? And Nehemiah says, King... My city of my God is in ruin. It's in rubble. It's been that way for 140 years. I've got to do something about it. And the king says, what would you like me to do to help you? 
Now think about that. A pagan king offering to help a Christian prophet. A pagan king concerned about a man that's not only of his race, but not of his religion. And Nehemiah says, this is what I need you to do. And the king says, I'll do it all. What did Nehemiah ask for? What did the king say he wanted done? Nehemiah said, I'd like to go back to Jerusalem. I'd like to make the journey to Jerusalem. It's a thousand mile journey. I'd like to make the journey. The king says, granted, take a leave of absence. You may go to Jerusalem. Nehemiah says it's a long trip, over 1,000 miles. It'll take me three to four months to get there. Traveling is dangerous. It's going to take a lot of supplies, food and water and medicines and clothes and all the other things to get there. And the king says, don't you worry about any of that. I'm going to send a security team with you. I'm going to send a logistical squad with you. My security team will protect you from thieves and robbers and anybody else who might try to bother you. My logistical team will put up the tents, take down the tents, cook the food, make sure you have water, make sure all of your needs are met. Nehemiah says, when I get there, I would like to be able to rebuild these walls. And the king says, I will give you the orders signed and sealed on my stationery that give you permission to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And I will pay for it all. I'll pay for the walls. I'll pay for the gates. I'll pay for the restructures that would be built. Wow! God's man in the right place at the right time. God has positioned him to do this work for God. And a pagan king is going to take care of all of it. Let me ask you some questions as we pause here. If God wanted to do a work today, could he find a person of integrity sitting in this congregation? Could he find a man or a woman or a young person who's on a high plane morally and spiritually? Could he find someone here today that walks with God, talks with God, knows the will of God, the word of God, the way of God, Could God find somebody here this morning that he could trust? Could he? Could it be you? Because when God finds such a person, I can tell you he will use them. He'll put a burden on that person's mind and heart about something that God wants to get done. When you say, Lord, here am I, and you're a person of that kind of integrity, God is going to give you a burden. God's going to give you a passion for something that he wants to use you to accomplish. You won't have to go looking for it. God will give it to you. And then God will begin to move upon you to pray about it. To ask God to come and help you with this burden that he's given you, this passion that he's given you. And this prayer will be God Bring the people that I need to accomplish this work you want me to do. Bring me the resources I will need 
to accomplish this work you want me to do. And then God does it through us. Oh, he could do it himself, but he always chooses to use us. And when the work is accomplished, he gets the glory. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Can God use you? Has God given you a burden or a passion? Are you praying about how God could make it come to pass in you and through you? You know, Isaiah said, Lord, here I am. Send me. You know what we say today? Lord, there he is over there. Use him. <laughs> Lord, there she sits over there. Send her. All God needs is somebody who will walk with him and talk with him. God, Someone God can trust. And when that happens, amazing things will unfold. Nehemiah's burden, and God began to work to bring it to pass. Now, I want you to understand as we go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 through 19, that whenever you say, Lord, here I am, whenever you're that person of integrity, whenever God gives you the burden and the passion, whenever you begin to pray, and ask God for the people and for the resources to do what he has called you to do. That you might accomplish it for his glory and fulfill his will. Whenever that happens, you can expect opposition. When the windows of heaven open to bless, the gates of hell will open to blast. Do you understand that? And Nehemiah is about to understand this theological lesson. Blastings and blessings always run simultaneously. Chapter 2, verse 17 through 19. Then I said unto them, you see the distress that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. This is Nehemiah talking. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Nehemiah is now in Jerusalem talking to the people. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. Also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And the people all said, let us rise up and build. Let's be obedient to God. Let's follow Nehemiah's leadership. So they strengthened their hands for this work. Verse 19, what's the first word in it? But. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, and an Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, heard of what Nehemiah was saying, they wholeheartedly supported him. <laughs> no, they laughed at him to the point of scorn. They despised him. They said, what is this thing that you're trying to get us to do? All you are is a rebel trying to lead us in disobedience against the king. 
Can you imagine somebody being opposed to the rebuilding of the holy city? Can you imagine somebody being opposed to the rebuilding of the holy city when it's not going to cost them one single dime? Can you imagine somebody being opposed to the building of the holy city that's not going to cost them any money that would bring glory to God? Can you imagine anybody being opposed to that? Well, you can if you look at the verses we just read. There were three men who rose up in opposition against Nehemiah. But listen to me. They rose up in opposition against God. Nehemiah is God's man. And so in rebelling against Nehemiah and trying to oppose the work and trying to be obstacles in the work, they're actually fighting God. You know, Satan will use secular people to oppose his work. But oftentimes he uses religious people as well to oppose his work. He uses the secular people from the outside and he uses the religious people from the inside. And they both work together to stop the work that God has given to one of his people to do. And that's what's going on here. Again, you and I sitting here, it doesn't make a bit of sense. Why would anybody be opposed to it? But I guess if we could answer that question, we could answer this question. Why would anybody be opposed to missions? But I can tell you there's many people that call themselves people of God who sit in churches just like this one who do not support missions and do everything they can to undermine it. Why would somebody be opposed to trying to reach people for Jesus? Why would people oppose welcoming people to come to worship? But there's some churches and some people that if you're not the right color, class, or culture, you're not welcome. I don't guess they're going to go to heaven because heaven is cross-cultural, cross-class, cross-color. Why would some people oppose remodeling and maintaining the, pe the facilities of God? Why would people want God's house to look junky? God's property to look shabby? I don't know, but there are people who oppose that kind of stuff. Why would, why would people oppose taking care of God's servants? Some churches pride themselves on keeping the man of God at starvation levels. Why would people oppose taking care of a man of God financially? Why would people oppose a preacher, a man of God, talking about alcohol consumption or smoking a pot or sexual immorality or vile prejudice? But there are many churches, if you were to bring up those subjects, they'd run you out of town. Why, can, why do people oppose things that are so obvious to be the will of God and found in the Word of God? If I could answer that question, I'd be rich, and so would you. But I'd like to make a speculation, if you don't mind. 
the people who oppose the very clear will of God, the very clear word of God, are agents of the devil. Satan infiltrates them into society, and he infiltrates them into the church, and he uses these agents, I call them, to cause disruption, to cause division, and to stop any work of God taking place. And Nehemiah quickly finds out that there's three of them in that day that are going to stand against him. Now, I want you to understand the ways that they're going to stand against Nehemiah. Because as you're listening to these ways, if you're smart, you're taking note. Because I'm a person of integrity. God has given me a burden and a passion to do something to advance his kingdom here on earth. I'm praying even now that God will bring me the people and the resources that I need to make this happen. And I'm doing this for the glory of God that his will will be done. Lord, this is what I'm trying to do. And pastor, I know it's going to be an easy thing to do. I'm just going to tiptoe through the tulips and smell the roses on the way to doing it. No, you're not. Because I can promise you, there are some sand ballots out there. There's some Tobiases out there. There's some Gershoms out there who are waiting to get a hold of you and stop you. And now let's see how they're going to try to stop Nehemiah. Because Satan doesn't change his strategy. He doesn't change it at all. It's still the same way today. First of all, he's going to use their mockery. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Follow as I read. He's going to use their ridicule, their mockery. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was angry. This is one of the opposers. He took great indignation and mocked the builders. He spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they're going to protect themselves? Are they going to make sacrifices that God doesn't care about? Will they make an end of a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are being burnt? Now, this is sarcasm, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was with him, also joined in and said, Even if they build these walls, a little fox can stand on what they build, and it'll come crashing down. The first strategy that Satan is going to use to stop the work of Nehemiah is verbal mockery, verbal ridicule. You know, we got a little rhyme that says, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. May I say to you, that's not true. The names that people call us hurt. They don't break our bones. They break our heart. And when these three opposers to the work start running their mouths and, and start tearing down and trashing Nehemiah and the builders and the work that's taking place, it bothered him. It would bother any of us. But you know how Nehemiah handled it, ladies and gentlemen? He just ignored it. You know the best way to handle critics? Ignore them. Most critics want a microphone put in their face. 
They want a spotlight put on them. They cannot stand it when you just ignore them. And that's what Nehemiah does. He just ignores his critics. The more they talk about him, the more he talks to God. He takes his critics to God and he says, God, you shut them up. You silence them. You neutralize what they're saying. And God did. It's a waste of time to argue with critics. Our president would be good to know that. You can't argue with fools. You can't argue with people who are, are bent on an ideology and they're not coming off of it. Nehemiah knew there's nothing he could say that was going to make them stop talking. There's nothing he could say that would change their mind. So he just completely ignored them. Nehemiah understood something, ladies and gentlemen. If you let a critic talk long enough and loud enough, their long, deceitful tongue will wrap around their neck and hang them. But that's how Satan works. He uses criticisms. He uses mockery. He uses ridicule against us verbally. Nehemiah says, I, I'm not, I don't got time to listen to that. Then they changed their tactics in verse 7 and 8 of Nehemiah 4. Their verbal assault isn't working. So now they're going to go from saying words to using their fists. They're going to go from the verbal to the physical. Notice in verse 7 and 8, Nehemiah 4, And it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashadites and all the other dites that were with them heard the walls of Jerusalem were being built, that the breaches were being plugged, they were again very angry. You know, Satan's crowd's always angry. I mean, they're never happy. I guess because they know where they're going. I wouldn't be happy about that either. And they considered all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stop the work. That word fight means to physically take charge. They couldn't stop the work with their words, so they said, we'll stop the work with our fist. We're going to stop this work. Now, Nehemiah wasn't intimidated by their threats. Because when a man kneels before God, he can stand against anybody else. Nehemiah knew how to pray. And when he prayed, God gave him confidence and God gave him courage. So when he stood up, he wasn't intimidated by these enemies and their words. He wasn't intimidated by these enemies and their fists. In World War II, there was a slogan. And the slogan said, praise the Lord and what? Pass the ammunition. When it comes to defending ourselves against those who would physically hurt us, God says, I'll protect you and you protect yourself. We'll work together. I'll silence the critics. You don't have to do anything with them. But when it comes to people who are physically trying to hurt you or attack you or to abuse you or take your life, you're to trust in me, praise the Lord, and get your ammunition ready. 
Billy Graham said, when it comes to dealing with people who want to hurt you, you employ perspiration in prayer. Perspiration. You do all you can do to protect yourself, and then you pray that God will take care of the rest. I heard about a man one time was asked what he would do if somebody attacked his family. He said, we'll take care of it. The Lord, Smith and Wesson, and me, we'll take care of it. So Nehemiah employs security guards around the work that's being done. You say he didn't trust in God. Oh, he trusted in God. He trusted in God enough to obey his word. Don't ask God to do what we can do. God does what we can't do. So the enemies now, they've tried to verbally stop the work. Nehemiah ignored them. Then they tried to physically intimidate Nehemiah. They threatened him with violence, with, with conflict, with death. So he hires security people to guard as the workers continue to build the walls. Now the opposition does something else. They try to use greed, personal sin, to stop the work. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren, the Jews. There's inner fighting taking place among God's people. What's the problem? Verse 2. For they were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many, therefore, and we take up corn for them that they may eat and live. We need food. We need to have food that we can live. Verse 3. But there were some that said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy this food because of the famine. Now let me tell you what's taking place here. There's a famine in Jerusalem. There's not enough food. And those who have the food, who are Jewish people, have marked up the food that they have 100% markup. 200% markup, 500% markup, 1,000% markup. A can of corn that cost 50 cents is now $50. Now this is God's people doing this to God's people. This is the merchants of God's people doing this to those who are trying to do the work of building the walls. You would think they would sell it to them at least at a fair price, and no, they're not doing that. When Nehemiah gets word of this, that these racketeers are extorting money from their own people who are trying to do God's work, he gets angry. And he calls them out publicly. Nehemiah was not a boisterous man. He was not a loud mouth. He was not a big mouth. He was very basically a quiet man. But when he hears about what's taking place and it's happening among his own people, he gets angry. And he calls out these racketeers, these extortionists, these thieves for what they're doing. They're forcing people into poverty. People are having to sell everything they've got just to feed their family because of the prices they're being charged. Now, Nehemiah understood something. 
when people are doing evil things, sometimes they need to be called out. Not all the time, but sometimes. And Nehemiah puts the light on them. Cockroaches. I know it's before lunch, you don't want to hear that word. Palmetto bugs. <laughs> Palmetto bugs operate in the dark. They feel very comfortable in the nastiness of the shadows. But if you want to send a cockroach palmetto bug running, what do you do? Flip on the light. And you'll send them running. You'll scatter them. They don't like the light. And that's the way it is with Satan's evil people. When you put the light on them, they will take off and scatter. They can't take the light of the light of the world. And Nehemiah calls them out publicly. He says exactly what they're doing. And they leave town or they change their prices. You know, sometimes we have to call out people. Do you know Abraham Lincoln called out a nation to slavery? It had been in the dark and in the shadows. He put the light on it and said it had to end, and it did. William Booth called out the slums of London, England, where people were living like animals. He pointed it out. And the city of London had to deal with the slums, and they did. Clara Barton, she called out the filthy hospitals of the military of her day. Hospitals where men who were wounded would go and they would die. More people were living on the battlefield than in the hospitals because there was terrible hygiene and sanitation. Infection was rampant. She called it out, and something was done to fix it. Ronald Reagan called out the evil Soviet empire and hastened its collapse. Nehemiah called out the evildoers of his day and the evils of his day, and they scattered. Sometimes it just takes one person who's bold enough to say what needs to be said. Now, can you figure out what's happening here? The opposition's trying to stop the work. They've used a verbal attack. They've used a physical attack. They've used extortion, the sinfulness of, of, of God's own people in trying to make money. So now they're going to try one more thing. Treachery. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me. This is Nehemiah speaking. Saying, come let us meet together and some of the villages in the plain of Ono. Why did they want to meet me? Nehemiah adds a little note. Because they wanted to do me mischief. The work is almost finished. So his enemies send him a note. He gets a first class letter in the mail. They say, Nehemiah, oh, you'll love this, Nehemiah, there, there seems to be a misunderstanding that we're trying to stop the work and hurt you. We know it, it appears 
that way, but that's not really. We didn't really say what, what we've been said to have said. We didn't really threaten you like has been reported to you. And no, we weren't behind all this markup of prices. We, we've been misunderstood. Like Dr. Pepper, we've been misunderstood. Nehemiah, we'd like to have a meeting with you, just you and us. Don't bring anybody with you. Let's have a quiet, personal meeting, just us and you. And I'm sure we can work all this out. Would you meet us, Nehemiah? And you know what he says? <laughs> no. You see, Nehemiah was smart enough to know that the meeting would accomplish absolutely nothing. What they were trying to do is bring him to a meeting and get him to say something where they could distort what he said, get him to do something where they could misalign what he did, or even kill him. He's smart enough to know that. So he says, no, I'm not going to meet with you. What can we talk about that's going to change anything? He didn't go. He's not going to allow himself to be trapped or framed by people who just have it in for him. In fact, in verse 3, he gives his answer as one of the great quotes of the Bible. He replies back to those enemies that want to meet with him. He says, I'm doing a great work for God, and I don't have time to fool with you because I'm not stopping. Boy, that, that's something to shout about. I like that answer. I'm doing a great work for God. I ain't got time to fool with you. To his critics, he ignored them. To the violent, he defended himself. To the greedy, he exposed them. To the treacherous, he avoided them. And he just kept on working. Do you understand me? When God gives you a passion and a burden to do something, you're going to get these same people coming after you. And you deal with them the same way Nehemiah did. We close very quickly. Time's running out with chapter 13. We go from the burden, from the opposition, to Nehemiah's great frustration. In Nehemiah 13, and I don't have time to read the chapter, you may, we read that the work was completed. The walls were built, the gates were reestablished, the inner buildings were being remodeled and re restructured. The city of Jerusalem looked good, and God was proud of the city, and God was proud of the work that had been done. But there was still something that was missing. While God brought a revival to the buildings, God couldn't bring a revival to his own people. While the structures got rebuilt, the lives of the people never got rebuilt. The people, when Nehemiah left, had no more passion for God than when he came. In fact, they would go further from God even after they saw the great miracle that God had done in the city. You say, Pastor, how do you, how do you know that? Because if you read chapter 13, you'll find that those enemies that opposed Nehemiah, as soon as Nehemiah left, they became leaders.
They were put in leadership roles. Can you imagine that? These three men who were working for the devil are all of a sudden now leaders. And the people put them there. They gave no more money after Nehemiah left than they gave before Nehemiah came. They gave God leftovers. I've got a 6,000 square foot house to pray for. I've got four cars to pray for. I've got a country club membership to pay for. I've got a boat that's got to be paid for. I don't have anything to give to God except a handful of nickels and dimes. That's what they were doing. They didn't have time to worship God because they played golf on Sunday. They had travel ball on Sunday. They had this to do. They had that to do. If we can make it to church, we will, but it ain't no big deal. God understands. Me and God, we got our own thing going. That'd make a good song, wouldn't it? Maybe Tom T. Hall should record that. Nehemiah told them they shouldn't intermarry. They should marry people of like faith. As soon as he left town, what did they do? They started marrying people of false religions and no religion. God's will, God's word, God's way, and not even God himself was no big deal anymore. And you know, this broke Nehemiah's heart more than anything else. He built the buildings, but he couldn't build the people. Now, he wouldn't give up. He would faithfully serve God until the day he couldn't serve God no more. But that was his frustration. In my time at Miles Road, we have built a new sanctuary. We built a new family life center. We have remodeled, re-enhanced every one thing we've got here. But my ministry and the ministry of my staff has failed if we haven't built you. Churches spend a lot of time building facilities and they don't spend enough time building people. And if you're no better spiritually when I leave one day than when I came, I have failed you. And you have failed. And God has not been honored or glorified. Nehemiah, he built walls, but he couldn't build people because people got to build themselves. Heads are bowed and eyes are